Should you pound the power or reach for speed? How and when to adjust projections? And a new way of looking at the drafting landscape through the eyes of a market premium. ESPN's Tristan Cockroft joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always, Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and Happy New Year to you. Uh, football, those who uh, are have been doing fantasy football, for most of you, that's over, and it's now straight ahead, straight to baseball. How, how's your uh, New New Year's? My New Year's was great. My football team actually finished in third, which is not great. I had another team that finished in first, but we split the pot, which is a whole... Another topic of conversation, if you're winning your league, whether you want to split it, if you're in a championship game, we decided to split, and we would have won anyway, so there's that. Ah, there you go. Well, good for you. Well, we've got a great show today. Uh, We have ESPN senior analyst. He is the co-host of the Fantasy Focus Baseball podcast. He's won a couple of labor labor expert league championships and three Tout Wars championships all in a row. Welcome to Beat the Shift. Welcome, Tristan Cockroft. How are you? Doing well. Hey, Ariel. Hey, Ravane. Good to talk to you again. And yeah, it's it's interesting to hear uh, football there. It's it's time to pass the baton over to baseball. But Ravane, I I'll, I sympathize with you here that I was in literally the same spot as you. First place, having split the pot, and a third place finish in my next uh, biggest league. <laughs> no. It just goes to show how how um how aggressive we are in leagues that you want to be more conservative at the end just to get that finish, just to get that money, I guess. It's it's always tough as a decision for me in football, just because that's around holiday time. Sometimes you want to just not sweat it that last Sunday. You know, it's it's a difficult decision. <laughs> you know, mine was my neighbor, so I wanted to keep my neighbor happy. That's all. Right. You're asking an actuary here if they if you want to be risk averse and split it. I, I almost always split it, but but that's just <laughs> me. I'm I, I shy away from risk, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Um, but on our strategy section, I'm going to talk about projections. Not about how they're created, but rather in how you use them, how they intertwine with rankings, how you can adjust them, and so on and so forth. So let's just throw this out to you very generally, uh, Tristan. Um, How do you use projections in creating your rankings in how you draft and so on and so forth? So there's there's a couple of ways that I use them. Um, Initially, I'll use a very basic end of the previous season rough projection, close to what Marcel's are. Uh, that I just developed very very quickly on my own uh, to create a base set of rankings. I find it extremely difficult to just sit down with a piece of paper, and in this case, it would be a spreadsheet, but just think <laughs> in the virtual world, uh, like a, quote, piece of paper. Um, it, it will give me an initial set to start from, and then what I'll do there is I'll start taking my own opinions and moving players around. Later in the process, the other way in which projections come into play for me are that they serve as a safety net. They, they eliminate outliers. There could be cases where a player I thought was a lot better than he really should be might be 500 spots off in terms of the projection. And in that case, it's going to flag those in my spreadsheet. And then I'll sit down and check that player, review them, and see whether I truly feel that way about them and decide where I want to settle. Am I going to cut that, that 500 spot gap down or am I going to just you know go out on an island on that player? And one of the interesting parts about that is that 
because I do a lot of those uh, list-generated uh, columns, so for example, the Tristan's 20 at the beginning of the year, one of the ways in which I find players, candidates for that list is this method, is that if I see a projection that's way off from where I have the player ranked, then I know immediately right there, early in the game, that's probably gonna be a player that I'm planting my flag on, uh, if you will, and he'll end up being on a candidate, kind of the early draft candidates list for the Tristan's 20. Interesting, interesting. Um, we do things a little bit differently um, in terms of w w on this show, we're very much into the ATC projections and use that as the backbone of a lot of our analysis. Um, the general method is we come up with the ATC projections and we take a look and look at the market. We see where ATC is much higher than the market is doing. And then we do a deep dive into uh, whether we, th we agree with that. And if we agree with that assessment of the player by looking at his underlying as highlighted by ATC, then we know we're in a good spot and we can focus on setting up uh, who we want to uh, go after. Uh, we're not really big on ranking here. Um, we, we're, we're more in interested in highlighting the right players. Uh, Ruvain, uh, you want to add to that? Yeah, one other thing that we do is that besides just taking the numbers that the computer spits out, we actually go through every single player and we, and we check off and see whether or not the computer had an, an error because that sometimes happens and we have to look at playing time. And it's the main thing with all these players right now is for any type of projections um, set is that you have to see the playing time and if it makes sense to what your numbers spit out. If they don't make sense or let's say if something is way off, then you have to edit it and you have to you know change it accordingly. So the question to you, Tristan, is um, when, when you're looking at projections, what about the projections are you most inclined to change manually? Is it going to be the playing time? Do you find that projections don't get home runs right, stolen bases right? What, what, what do you find yourself really disagreeing with projections more often than not? Almost, uh, I'd say at least three quarters of the time, my biggest objection with projections is the playing time. I actually think it's the greatest failing we have overall in the projections field is that we struggle to project playing time. The other thing too is you, you get the philosophical question of do you over project playing time? Um, Zips, just to throw one example for projections here, uh, ha has this philosophy of projecting what a player would do if he played a good amount of time in Major League Baseball. So um, it, you're always going to end up with way more playing time than you could possibly use on a fantasy team and especially a major league team. I like to project players close to where I think they're actually going to play. Uh, it, it's one of, I mean, frankly, since as far back as I can remember, that's been one of the big things for me is that when I'm adjusting projections, that's where I'm being the most aggressive manually is that I, I will take a stance on, I think this player is an everyday 675 to 700 PA type of player and I'm going to let the projection there speak for itself based on that number. Um, beyond that, I'll, I'll usually flag a few players. Uh, the one that didn't work out that great last year was Chris Davis. The <laughs> I'd say the, the good one, except neither of them were particularly good last year. The A's one uh, had an injury that I thought influenced his numbers quite a bit in 2019, especially the final four months of the year. So I'll usually jot down examples like that where I think that, it, that the numbers I drew in for the projections in the first place were influenced unfairly by usually by an injury or if a player was just in a bad situation, ballpark, if they had an extreme shift uh, in their ground ball fly ball rate. Josh Bell is another guy that comes to mind for me this season. I might do a little bit of a manual projection, but I always try to remind myself not to go, not to stray too far. The, the playing time is the one where I'm going to uh, make the biggest tweaks. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And I've noticed that the high-skilled players, even who are not projected with that much playing time, um, I often see that the ATC projections just themselves bump them up. For example, um, last year, Dominique Smith, um, high-skilled player, but people didn't know, is he going to play, when he's going to play, where he's going to play? Well, ATC had a little bit higher a playing time because of his high skill, and that helped out. Uh, thinking from the year before that, DJ LeMahieu, um, people didn't know where he's going to play. Well, you got Andahar, you got Gleyber Torres. Where in the world is DJ LeMahieu going to play? Are the Yankees going to play him four times a week or not? But the high skilled players generally get a bump in playing time because they're good. And hey, it's so it, Ruben can tell you it's so so easy to get injured these days um, that uh, if you under project some of those high-skilled players, and you will find out that you're going to miss out on some of the best bargains of all of fantasy. Ruben? Yeah, I totally agree. I think the injury aspect is the is one of the biggest aspects because there are a couple major pitchers coming back this year from season-ending surgeries. You have Chris Sale coming back. You have Noah Syndergaard coming back. When are they coming back? What's their playing time going to be? Are they going to be fully effective when they come back? These are all questions that it's not a matter of the rates at this point. It's a matter of just the playing time. Because if, if you think, let's say, Chris Allen and Noah Syndergaard, they had surgery within a week apart of each other. If they're both uh, attempting to come back around June, but one of them comes back in, in, in May and one of them comes back in July— you know, it, it's so hard to be able to, you know, to be able to figure out what's going to happen. There are a lot of players who are coming off of um, uh, surgery during the off season, and even when the, something like that, you don't know how things are going to play out. So there's a lot of different for injury. It's 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 a crapshoot if you unless you know the person himself and how they're feeling. It's it's basically a crapshoot. Yeah. Word about projections. Um, you know, no set of projections are going to be perfect. The, the best projections only get things right 60 to 70 percent of the time. The really good ones get them right almost 70 percent and the crappier ones get them a little bit below 60 percent. Uh, but if you are going to stray far off of projections in the long run, you're going to do yourself more harm. Sure, there can be a player that you might say, you know what, I think he was very unlucky last year. I think the projections are not giving him credit for a change in his swing or maybe he has a new batting instructor. Sure, you should alter those projections and you should take your eye test and, and do it. But if you're going to do that on a regular basis, you're going to find that you're not going to beat the projections. The automation of rates uh, are, are proven to be great in the long run. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we talk, Ruben just mentioned that we take the ATC projections and we say, okay, where are we going to adjust it? Where do we think that it's wrong in terms of playing time? But what I actually did and what I do is I spit out whatever the rankings say uh, based on the ATC unadjusted projections and I send them out to fantasy pros. Lo and behold, in uh, 2019, those set of rankings were the number one rankings. So I, I was listed on Fantasy Pros as the number one most accurate expert, and that was not from me doing anything. That was completely the computer of ATC projections doing it. So it shows you – now, it's not going to end up first every single year, but in the long run, I expect it to be one of the higher ones rather than just completely coming up manually or t touching up so many projections and whatnot. Now, question to you, Tristan. If you're going to adjust a projection, if you're going to say, I think a player is better or not, um, how do you incorporate that into your rankings? Do you just go straight to the rankings and say, I got to bump them up a few spots judgmentally? Or should you go into the projections, change them, and then run a valuation system and see how much it actually comes up and do that? Like, what, What's the, the right way to do it? 
so for me, it's a little different than I think the average uh, fantasy player, just because I, I work off an Excel sheet that generates dollar values, and from that I get rankings. Um, and what I like to do with it is I, I will actually experiment with the player, that individual player's projections among the field of Major League Baseball and see exactly how that's changing his rank. I don't want to just do it manually. I don't want to just tell myself I'm going to give him a five-spot bump. That doesn't feel right to me. I actually will go in there, uh, add what I feel or subtract what I feel is right. And very often, as we were saying before, the playing time, I'll adjust the playing time up or down, see what it does to him, how wide is his range on that entire list, and then I'll make a decision as to where I rank the player. And, and you know, that, that's it's not something that sometimes I can do, uh, you know, on a whim if a trade, for example, if a trade happens today, I, I probably will need to go in there and kind of ballpark it with uh, the rankings. We're at a little bit of an early stage pre-spring training where I'm probably not sitting there in front of that spreadsheet every minute moving the guy up and down five plate appearances or, you know, one or two extra wins. But that's generally what I'll do. I'll, I'll actually be doing that, adding a win or two for a guy going to what a better team, Lance Lynn, in his situation, and see exactly what that meant for him in terms of the ranking. Right. Um, I'll, I'll say one thing, though, about playing time and how to use projections. Um, it's not just about pick a number, right? Uh, the, the example I like to give from a couple years ago is uh, Rich Hill. Rich Hill was always fantastic when he pitched. You just never knew how much he'd give. He'd always get injured and so on and so forth. Um, but the question is, should you draft him at the right price? And rather than just picking a number and saying, I think he's going to pitch 110 innings, you should be running projections at what you think a maximum is, what you think a minimum is, and compare that price that you get from running that to what he's going for in the market. So if you're going to – if let's say you run him and say, okay, what if Rich Hill only gives me 80 innings? What would he be worth? And you know, you run your projections, and it says, okay, uh, uh, 10th round. And then you run him and say, okay, and what if he is going to be pitching 130 innings? Oh, that bumps him up to a seventh round. See where he's going. Is he a bargain, both in the minimum and maximum cases? Is it a toss-up whether, well, if he beats his, if he beats his average, then he'll be a bargain. If it's not, then note. The, the, the key here is a sensitivity test. Um, it's, it, I think it's a great thing not to go straight to rankings. I think that everyone should get uh, an auction calculator tool or something, generate dollar value rankings so that you yourself can put in your estimates of sensitivity testing. Maybe you have your own idea of putting in uh, um, a, a number of at-bats or a number of innings pitched and do the analysis yourself. Um, that, that, that's what I like to, uh, to do. Ruben? Well, one player that would really be a good litmus test is Shohei Otani because his value skyrockets when he's able to pitch. Is he going to be pitching all year? Is he going to be pitching in a five-man rotation? Is he going to be pitching in a six-man rotation? Is it even going to stay in the rotation? So a player like that, you have to. You know, there are extreme highs and lows, and you have to know how to balance that because players like that, it's just almost impossible to get it right. You have to. Well, you have to be on more. I would say on the conservative side. Otherwise, you're going to end up overpaying for the player, and you just, there's going to be no profit in that. Yeah. How are you using uh, Otani, uh, um, Tristan, in, in your leagues? And in how, how are you evaluating him? So, I, I mean, the fact that he had such a disappointing year, and then he has the injury question, kind of casting the shadow over his pitching ability. Uh, makes him very difficult to rank for me. I, I actually, <laughs> I, I kind of wish that the Angels would just let him hit because I think he's a pretty special player just on his own right there. Um, Otani, and you mentioned Rich Hill a minute ago, 
there are important names to bring up in terms of the league context as well. So Ariel, this is a great point about using an auction calculator. As I describe in my Excel spreadsheet, I have one that does that. It actually does account for the league context. I don't think that enough people who, are, who attempt to create their own dollar values and rankings off a set of projections consider uh, the league context enough. Because the advantage to a player like Otani or Rich Hill is that generally when they're hurt and they're out, you can replace them. And if you're in a league that has a pretty deep replacement pool, so for example, the ESPN Standard League, which is 10 teams, it's not difficult to get good quality replacement value players uh, right off the waiver wire. And when you have Otani, and generally, I don't know that I'd say it now for Rich Hill, but two, three years ago, when Rich Hill was healthy, he was great. So if you attach him to a good replacement level player in an ESPN 10-team standard mixed league, Rich Hill is worth a lot more there than he would be, for example, in a 12-team AL only, where if you're missing him, it's going to get a little bit ugly. You're probably going to be leaning on a middle reliever. So, you know, they're, they're, they're different guys. I think in Otani's case, he's tough just because I'm coming from the universe for ESPN where you have to lock him in for X period of time as either a hitter or a pitcher. You can't use him as both. You have to decide which stats are important to you. Uh, you know, I can manipulate the games played in the daily format for that. He's a difficult guy to rank. We'll probably get into another guy who's very difficult to rank in the show in a little bit, too. But Otani's definitely one of the most difficult to rank just because of the the variable role, the injury, and just the way that you use him across different leagues. There's leagues that allow you to use him as two separate players, a hitter in one and a, and a pitcher as another player within the same league. It's it's tough to, to nail him down to one number. Right. If you do have a league, uh, let's say the ESPN Standard 10-team league, that are you drafting, and let's say, I'm not sure what the rules on ESPN, it might be that you can use them either or, but not in the same week. Um, are you drafting him at to be used as a hitter, or are you drafting him to be used as a pitcher? I, I would think hitter. I, I'm drafting him because I could use him either way. So in okay. the ESPN game, the advantage would be that on the days he pitches, uh, he's probably not going to be the DH. They're not going to waive that to have him bat. So I know that day I can use him as a pitcher. And then on the next day, if he's the designated hitter, I throw him in at DH. We have the daily lineup thing. So ah, in the ESPN yes. leagues, you actually can maximize Shohei Otani's value. And the ones where you have to pick for the week, I think he's a lot less valuable. And the other thing, too, in our points structure, he's a lot more valuable. Right. Oh, for sure, Otani in a daily league is miles ahead of him in a weekly league. Yep. Um, how do you evaluate that? How do you evaluate Otani in a in a like in a, in terms of an auction dollar context? How do you eva evaluate him in terms of daily versus versus weekly? So I, I think it's a pretty wide gap. If uh, you know, and I'm not thinking about him in terms of a, a dollar price here, but in in the ESPN ranking context, we're talking uh, about at least a five round swing between whether it's a daily or a weekly transaction league. And yeah. you can do either one of these in the game. Uh, I would say from a dollar value perspective, he's going to have one of the widest gaps between that. I would, I would say off the top of my head, it's a seven or $8 difference. Right. My, my math on that would be in a weekly league, you would give him the maximum of whatever his value is as a pitcher or hitter alone. But in terms of a daily league, you would almost, add up the values of his hitting and pitching statistics minus a dollar or so as he'll occupy, um, actually, sorry, plus a dollar as he'll only occupy one roster spot and you can almost essentially use him as both. So he almost gets the sum of both his values. As you said, it, it's tremendous. And uh, your seven, eight dollar thing is uh, pretty close because I have Otani right now looking as about an eight dollar hitter, about a dollar two pitcher. So there you go. Um, there, there's that gap right there. Um, 
uh, our episode tonight is our market premium episode, and uh, it, it's a term, market premium, that I use a lot, but I figured we get a little bit into the nitty-gritty of it and talk about strategy of how to use it, define it, and whatnot on the show. So uh, if you will, uh, follow me on this one. You know, the general concept of, of a market premium is as follows. You know, if, if you go to a jewelry store, gold costs a certain amount, silver costs a certain amount, diamond costs a certain amount, and so forth, so on and so forth. Uh, my grandfather, who was a watchmaker for over 60 years, he worked in a jewelry store, and I always remember him telling me, he said, Ariel, uh, an item is only worth as much as people are willing to pay for it. Meaning there's no really intrinsic value of it. It's just as much as it's going to go for, as much as people are willing to spend for it. So, you know, the question is what speedsters, people who steal a lot, they're expensive in drafts. And that is because essentially people pay up for them. That's really the reason, right? Closers are going more expensive essentially because people pay up for them, we think at least. Um, and, and that's sort of what the, the market premium concept is. Uh, the definition that I'll give you is um, a market premium is an additional value that the market is paying for a, a commodity, in this case a, a, a certain position, like a shortstop, or a certain statistic, like a stolen base, uh, above what you would dream, what you would de uh, determine as the inherent value for the commodity. So if you do your auction calculations and you think uh, a player is worth $20 who steals, but yet the market is paying $25 for them and they're pretty much a one-trick pony, um, the value of the market premium for steals is about $5, if you find that on average. So, um, you know, for, first of all, just wanted to get your, your take on, on um, what, what you think of that concept, Tristan, and how you might find that in leagues that you draft. Um, I, I think it's a good description of this concept. I, I, and I do witness this more so in my auction leagues than I do in my draft leagues. And, and often the, the more shallow the league, uh, the less likely you're going to see this concept take hold. Uh, so, for example, in labor and tout wars, leagues that are deeper, leagues that are auction driven, I do see this happen a lot. There's a, usually a, a bigger premium placed on things like steals, especially, uh, and often position scarcity, which I think is <laughs> overrated almost to the point that it's a myth. I'd argue it's, frankly, at this point, a total myth. Um, we see it a little bit more in those. And, and it frustrates me because it, it forces me to... to take a different approach to building around those categories, those positions. If I feel that everybody's going to, for example, pay up for all the speedster shortstops, I have to kind of zag because they're all zigging. Um, you know, I, I guess the best way to put this is I, I've, I've been a, I'm a big baseball card guy. I have been for years. And once the, once the market got flooded and then they went to these specialized cards and everybody was paying for autographs and, you know, like fancy whatever chrome things, I'd be the guy sifting through the bargain bin there. And it's the same approach to, to fantasy and at the auction table is that if you're just going to go and pay up a premium, I'm going to try to sift through that and get the little bargains you let sneak through because I'm pretty sure that there's going to be some. And I've gotten caught on that at times. And I've been left with that, you know, 88 tops worthless card, you know, the fantasy equivalent of that. But, you know, more often than not, I'm going to find the value. All right. So three points, though, to, to make. One, the market premium is specific to each league. There are home leagues that I play in, Ruvain plays in, in with me, that pitchers just don't go high at all. But if we play in the NFBC, my God, there could be five pitchers taken in the first round. So it's very specific to the league itself. 
Uh, number two, it is not the re- the uh, replacement level uh, position position scarcity concept. Um, that in and of itself is a different discussion, and I agree with you, Tristan. It really doesn't exist other than catchers. Catchers, obviously, um, there is a, a scarcity element to that, but uh, it's a different concept to that. It's just people paying over what really they should be paying because you know, there's just a, a, a small amount of quantity of players that fit a certain description or category or, or whatnot. Um, the the or, third or am point... I interrupting you on that one? I, yeah. I, in your leagues, you have not experienced the uh, unusually large inflation on middle infielder. I do have uh, home leagues you mentioned as an example. I have had that experience where I felt that they were being vastly priced up. I do, and I'm going to consider that a market premium, not as positional scarcity. Because I don't, because I don't believe in positional scarcity for middle infielders right now, because the replacement level is really even with everybody else, that's a market premium, and I think it's unwarranted. So, and we'll talk a little bit about each position t- on today's show. Uh, that's a case where I would not pay up for these middle infielders because I think there's a market premium that I don't want to pay. Uh, it, yeah, it makes sense. I, I think we're 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 kind of saying a little yeah. of the same thing on that. It's right. I, I've seen in extreme examples, especially you know the home leagues, occasionally the more casual ones, people will get carried away even with just positions as opposed to categorical. But I, yeah, we're right. on the same page there. Right, and 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 basically, what I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think I agree with everything you say there. I'm just defining it as it's a market concept, not as a inherent value difference because of scarcity. Right. That, I'm just changing right, right. the verbiage for it. Right. Sure. You, sure. Now, the other thing I'll say that um, is, it's not that I don't want to pay a market premium. It's that the key to winning at fantasy baseball is paying less of a market premium than anybody else. So. Take closers, and maybe let's 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 start with closers in our discussion here. Closers are are needed because saves are a category. If you're playing uh, rotisserie baseball five by five, you need saves. So you can't you, unless you want to get a zero, which is not really a great plan. You need to get some saves. So let's say you determine that my goodness, closers are going three rounds above what they should, or there's a six dollar uh, market premium to go closers. It's okay to pay a market premium, just that if everybody's paying on average $6, don't be the one who pays 6 or 8 Be the one who pays 3 So it's okay to overspend on a position because it's a premium position, but just be sure that relative to the other people in that position, pay 3 I mean, when I go to an auction with, with Ruvain, we say, all right, here's a list of a couple of closers. Here's what we think they're worth. We know the market premium is X. We just want to be on the low side. So as soon as a closer comes up, We'll, we'll bid up to what we think is under the market premium, and so on and so forth. Um, so with the closer example, let's go to you, Ruvain, first. Um, you know, what do you think is the right way to, to play closers? Obviously, we, we need them, um, and we know that closers are not uh, a very reliable source. They're very iffy. When you do projection valuations, they always say that you're paying a huge premium for closers. What, what is the right approach for you? At draft day, it's quantity over quality. Try to get as many as possible because in the beginning of the year, they're gonna the, all these closers usually have their quote unquote jobs, and that's when you get probably most of your saves. Yes, there's a tough few closers that are, I guess, sort of reliable. You want to throw Kenley Jansen in there. You want to throw, um, I guess, Brad Hand in there. You want to throw Alex Colomy. These are people who are consistent. They're not premium closers. They're not necessarily the top. I mean, Hand was, 
But Jensen last year was actually undervalued for what everyone was, you know, he, he made money for people because people weren't paying the premium. They were paying premium for Liam Hendricks, who actually hit. They were paying premium for Josh Hader, who ended up with 13 saves. They were paying a premium for Edwin Diaz, who ended up with an extremely low amount of saves. So I think in, in, when it comes to a draft, I wouldn't pay the premium. I just get a lot of quantity over quality. All right, so Tristan, what, what is your approach on closers, and how would that relate to this concept of market premium? So, yeah, now where I see the market premium is most often in my home leagues. Uh, the, the closer position is the one where people are most apt to overpay for the lesser-tiered players, and they often fear paying the premium for one of the better types. So my take is if you've done your homework <laughs> and you actually have the right prices and the right tiers at that position – you should be fine. It is easy to just sit back there and wait for that value to fall in your lap. It's a little bit like my quarterback case in fantasy football. It's not quite the depth of the position that, that so it's not a perfect parallel, but it's that approach of sitting back and waiting for the value to come to you. Because I'll often say, I want to be in that middle to low tier. I don't want to pay for my saves. I want to fill it on the cheap. I'll get guys during the year. It's often not as easy as you think. You have everybody chasing after you in terms of fab during the year, or, on, or if you're in a waiver system by waivers, you might not be able to get the pieces that you need in order to do it. And I'll often find that people are paying for that third-tier closer the, effectively the same amount you would for a high-end second-tier closer. The minute the top closer goes for $15, and that's happened in a couple of the leagues where I had them at $20, $21, they go for $15. Uh, I'll, I'll throw a good example of a guy I like this year, Lucas Sims. He's not even guaranteed to be the closer for the Reds this year, but I like him. The minute that the top closer goes for $15 in my league, which I consider a bargain, I could see somebody in my league getting caught up and spending 10 or 11 on Lucas Sims. And to me, that's the mistake. So I'd rather have you tell me that the top guy is the bargain, or maybe it's the seventh, maybe it's the, the eighth, maybe it's the ninth. It's one position where I am open-minded. I'm going to try to be as cheap as I can, but I'm just going to let you give me the value. Right, and I think that really plays well into this market premium aspect that you know what the market premium is and you just want to be on the bottom end of it anywhere you can, right? Yeah, no doubt, no doubt, yeah. Right. Um, I'll say, though, in playing uh, NFBC high-stakes stuff, uh, I would say that uh, over the last couple of years, the market premium was lowest in the second-tier closers. So if you look at the top one, two, three, four closers, um, you have to pay a nice market premium. Then there's a little bit of a lull where you can get some nice bargains. It drops. But then that third batch of closers, people get scared because once that closer, once that second-tier run out, everyone's like, oh, God, I got to grab a closer right now, yet um, their value is much lower. So you're yep. much better playing in the NFBC, I found, in the second tier. That's where you get the smallest market closer. Um, in uh, home leagues, I found that playing the bottom often helps. That It's quantity over quality, as Ruvain said, um, and you just you know sit back, wait, grab some bargain bin stuff. If you get four of them, hope that two work out, and you know, you, you'll play the waiver wire not more than anybody else. Uh, and that's how I would do it. I find it the opposite in the home league, strangely enough, but I do agree really? with you on yes – I find that people want to they want to be the one who got that closer for a dollar who gets 35 saves and they but will the, unfortunately the, the two the two positions that get the most fab money usually are the prospective closers and the guys who get steals. So in most leagues that's the place where people say, "You know what? My closers are not cutting it anymore. I had these low tier closers, so I want to spend more on the waiver wire because to compensate for the fact that I didn't pay enough during draft day." Yep. I, I will, Ariel, I will agree that in NFBC, I do also find that that's, that's where the bargains are. I mean, even if I look at the early ADP, Colome, we mentioned his name a minute ago, Raphael Montero, 
Nick Anderson, if you think he's going to get saves this year. I mean, those are all players who are going near, near around 16, 17 from the looks of it, if I'm doing the rough math. Well, the Rays are a different story. I have the ball boy projected for four saves on the Rays, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Each of them stuff. is going to get four saves. They're going to split it it's, 11 ways. Uh, it's it's. I mean, if can you really legitimately? I mean, uh, uh, it has to be that 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 each Rays closer is. Are they even draftable? I mean, Nick Anderson is because of the of the strikeouts. I like Peter Fairbanks. I think he's legit. So maybe him, but I I I I can't see myself paying the market value for Rays closers because you're buying a closer for the for the saves, and I just I'm not confident that they're gonna get them. Are you? I'm not either. As a matter of fact, I could see the leader of the team being fortunate to get 10 to 12. And maybe, right. it's, Di- maybe it's Diego Castillo, for all we know. Who, I mean, it could be anybody on that team. I, right. No, I agree with you. Anderson's probably not the best. I'm, I'm quickly scrolling what the ADP numbers were there, and he was outside the one, uh, top 150. Um, but yeah, the Cardinals guys, Hicks, Gallegos, if it's one of them. Greg Hollins hovering in the 280s. Right. Um, and as, as everyone can hear, you know, Every league plays differently, so the concept of market premium is specific to your league. If you know that your league mates do something, well, then you have a different story, and you have to play your market premium aspect differently. Uh, Let's move on to starting pitchers. Um, Tristan, how do you feel about elite starting pitchers? Do you feel that there is a market premium for them, uh, and is it worth paying? What about middle pitchers? Um, Where do you find market premium in, in the starting pitcher role? I feel like the only places I see the market premium there are in the NFBC, as you had mentioned, and in points leagues. And that includes my home leagues, but especially in our game, the points leagues pay a, an almost absurd premium for starting pitchers. And, and understandably so, people often will just chase the total points leaderboard from the previous year, and starting pitchers dominate that based on the nature of our scoring. Beyond that, I actually think people are a little timid to spend on uh, a starting pitchers, and I'm willing to take that chance. I think as uh, the the workloads of starters decline these days. I mean, we had what was it? Uh, forty? Yeah, we had forty ERA qualifiers last year, and the three years before it were the three lowest in a full year since 1960. I know there were much many 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 fewer teams around in the league then. I want the guy who's going to give you ace numbers and gives you the innings behind it. That's really the key here: is that you're getting more volume from that guy. It's having more of an impact compared to your replacement level pitcher. So yeah, I actually am in, and I find. Almost always, I'm in on one of the first five pitchers in, in practically every league, except maybe the points. You agree with that, Ruben? I I actually agree. I mean, if, if you look at the starting pitchers from last year, um, if the top pitchers, the pitchers that people paid a premium for, which were Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom, Bieber, Cole, all those guys um, averaged uh, uh, more than 10 Ks per nine innings. There were four, actually 14 pitchers in, in leagues last year that averaged more than 10 Ks per nine. So you can you have those top guys. They stabilize your whip. They stabilize your ERA. They're usually on good teams. Usually, I'm not talking about Degrom. In the last couple of years, getting wins. But they they these top guys are usually worth the premium. But then you also have the other guys who are um, on this list of the top um, K per nine over in the last year. You have Denelson Lamette. You have Aaron Nola. You have Brandon, uh, Brandon Woodruff. All these guys were in the second tier that. Almost that it could that boosted up their value because they were getting the strikeouts. They were getting almost close to a one A 1A type pitcher, and you don't necessarily have to spend on the premium for the rest of the pitchers. Now it depends on what your plan is going into the draft. If you're planning on getting a one and you are or two ones or a one and a one A, it's all going to depend on what how you pray how you 
place your money elsewhere or how you place your picks elsewhere because you have to make sure that you don't overpay for these people because sometimes you'll end up overpaying and then again there's no profit in that yeah so i agree with tristan here um a couple of years ago talking seven eight years ago you you wouldn't be caught uh, you'd be you'd be crazy if you bought a pitcher before the third round. And if you, there's a lot of people who said, I'm not picking a pitcher until the seventh round. And you'd be crazy to pick uh, any pitcher before then. Now, if you go, especially in the high money NFBC leagues, if you don't come out of the first three rounds with a pitcher or even two these days, you're, you're crazy. Um, everybody is, is going up. And there's a good reason for that. I had a piece up on Fangraphs a couple of years ago that showed that the eighth pitchers are really not risky investments. They have uh, the highest probability to return the bulk of their value. So their value is warranted. Uh, so there is a market premium on that because uh, a lot of the projections do not incorporate risk. Right? It doesn't tell you how, how likely a, a, a person is to make their projection. But if you incorporate a, a risk-adjusted valuation, there really is no market premium. You should be buying a pitcher early, and everybody else does. You just want to not you know, you don't want to pick number one overall. You don't want to you don't want to forego incredible hitting stats that you can't get elsewhere. Uh, but it, it is justified. What I find that is the incorrect market premium is the second tier and third tier and fourth tier pitchers. Your SP two three fours that have shown historic terrible success rate. You are far better off not overpaying for pitchers in the whole middle range and drifting to the bottom and picking up a couple of number fives making sure you have a couple of ones. but And, of course, since you're paying that big premium above, since you're paying that first-round value of a pitcher, well, you're sort of playing stars and scrubs so that your overall balance of pitching isn't out of whack. Um, but I would not pay any market premium for what anybody is doing in the whole middle. Agree, Tristan? I do agree with that, yeah. As a matter of fact, yeah. I've been a big proponent, uh, and granted this comes a little bit from the more shallower, the general mixed leagues, even the 15-teamers of – getting your ace, getting the ace early, paying the premium and having them serve your anchor and then going with nothing but dart throw type bargains, you know, even below the third tier type of pitchers, guys right. who are mid to late rounds. And if you hit on two, three of those and you cycle out any of the others, as you see opportunities out there, if you can hit on two or three of those as big names, we mentioned a couple of Woodruff last year, Corbin Burns, another example from last year. If you get a couple of those, you're going to be in some really good shape pitching wise. Right. Let's talk about catchers. Now, catchers, as we uh, mentioned earlier in the show, have the added thing of what is truly a positional scarcity, right? Um, if you're playing in a 10-team, two-catcher league, there are 20 catchers taken. The 20th best catcher is not as good as the 20th best shortstop that you might have to roster. So when you're paying for a catcher, you're not paying for a catcher stats. You're paying for the privilege of of not getting the worst catcher, right? You don't want to end up with crappy production at the bottom. you got to pay something so you get less crappy production, and that essentially is what positional scarcity is, and it really is a true thing in catcher. Not with saying that that exists, what do we think about the catcher position in terms of market premium? Do we think that in leagues people are evaluating catchers correctly and paying the right positional scarcity? Or are they paying too much of a market premium? Are they paying not enough and giving you a discount? What do you find, Tristan, in, in leagues? I find that people are getting smarter about it, and that's probably because the position has become so awful over the past couple of years. There just really aren't any good catchers. Um, I'm, ch I'm trying to rapidly get you the number of how many were positive earners in ESPN leagues last year. I, I think it was seven or six or seven. Um, 
yeah, if I can get that, I'll tell you what the number was. It's, 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 right, not yeah. an, it's not enough to even fill a 10-team league. And by the way, that's a one-catcher league. So a couple things. One, uh, the league context is huge at this position. As you said, if it's a 15-team mixed league even, that's 30 catchers in a two-team or in a two-catcher league. So it, it is a little bit about avoidance of terrible, terrible numbers. I mean, you could be looking at a catcher who plays enough to damage you in terms of batting average. You get a guy with 300, 350 PAs, he bats 220. That's going to hurt your team quite a bit. So I endorse avoiding that uh, the more you're, you're diving into that catcher pool. But otherwise, if it's one of the shallow ones, and a lot of leagues are shifting towards one catchers, even 12-team, 15-team mixed leagues, if you're going in that direction, I'm not paying the premium at all. I won't pay up. I'm seeing people less uh, or, or increasingly uh, or decreasingly uh, paying the premium to get a premium catcher. I, you know, I, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a good guy if I think he slips in the draft, but not giving up my top 100 pick just to get a catcher and avoiding the 15th best player out in the league. I think I can do pretty well there and just scour the waiver wire during the, during the year. All right, Ruvain, your thoughts? I never pay premium for a catcher, and that's our that's our philosophy. Um, usually, when we play, when we when we draft catchers, whether it's the top, whether it's a two catcher league or a one catcher league, these catchers they're so interchangeable. Last year, according to CBS rankings, Gary Sanchez was a 17th ranked catcher. Now, does that mean that everyone didn't value their catchers correctly? No, he just had a a very bad year. Is he going to bounce back? I don't know. Are you willing to pay the premium on a Gary Sanchez who may go? either as a fourth or fifth catcher and hope that he does better. Uh, you know, last year also, Salvador Perez, who's coming off of an injury, is coming off of, of Tommy John surgery. People were paying the premium for him. I was not willing to do that with that risk involved with it, especially because when you get when once you get past the top three, four catchers, they're all basically interchangeable. You're just trying to avoid the worst batting average. That's all you're trying to do. So I don't see a reason to pay the premium for a catcher. So um, Mike Podhorzer told me a couple years ago that what he finds is in one-catcher leagues, uh, everyone has, is placing a market premium. Everyone's overvaluing catchers. In one-catcher leagues, just go to the bottom. Just With your last pick, just take a catcher. It doesn't matter who it is, and everyone is just paying $3 a couple rounds too much. But in two-catcher leagues, he finds that it's the opposite, that people don't understand the positional scarcity correctly, and they're underpaying. Uh, I'll say that in the two catcher leagues that I play in, which are the high-money NFBC leagues, um, I think that the very top catcher, and we'll talk a little bit about JT Romuto in a second, um, that's, that could be overpriced. Uh, but the second-tier catchers, we're talking about catcher number four through eight, let's say, uh, has actually a nice market discount that the positional scarcity is not properly taken into account in that. I guess people think they can just get away with $1 catchers, which is fine, but in terms of valuation, the second-tier catchers give bang for the buck. So if you are in a two-catcher league, I've found that take that second-tier catcher and also take one of those $1 catchers in the end, but at least you've gotten some value of the position. Now, question is JT Realmuto, who's sort of on an island. I think that anybody who's analyzing any uh, uh, fantasy baseball this year for catchers will tell you that Realmuto is the number one catcher, and he's significantly above replacement and probably will do about the same this year. Um, do you think, Tristan, that he's a guy, because of that, if we think he's so reliable, to take extra early at a position, especially in a two-catcher league? It really depends how you define early on that. I, I mean, if okay. he's going within the first 50 picks, 
I'm a little hesitant to do that, but y you could catch my ear. I, I might listen to it in, in the two catcher leagues. The advantage that Real Muto gives here, and this goes back to our playing time discussion. I feel like we constantly go back to this. Real Muto gives you positive production fantasy-wise, and he does it while giving you a lot more playing time than any other catcher does. It's actually one of the, the wider gaps of any position out there. That's why I will happily take him if he slips. So, for example, you know, I, I'd say if it's a two-catcher league and he's out there at pick 58 overall, I'm probably going to be taking him very seriously at that point. Okay. I'd consider that a bargain. He's not being priced up. I think you can make the case he's a top 40 pick potentially in a two-catcher 15-plus team mixed, or if it's a an NL with 12 teams, two starting catchers. I, I do think he gives you uh, that that kind of uh, impact. Well, how about, how, about, how about this question? If you're at the 50th pick... 15-team league, two catchers, we, and Rimuto's out there, and Liam Hendricks, the first, the, let's say he's a top closer, the top closer's out there. Who would you be more willing to take, the top closer or the top catcher? The top Muto. catcher in that case. Yeah. But it's just because of him, not because of right. the position. Not because of right. any other reason. Okay. Right. It's just because it's Real Muto. Right, right. I'll say that for the same reason. Salvador Perez in the past has gotten a lot of uh, playing time. He just chugs it out every day and plays, I'm not going to say 162 games, but quite a bit. Uh, Ruvain, is he fully recovered now? And you think he'll be able to catch uh, a good bulk of games this year again? Yeah, I think he's fully recovered. He, there was, he, he had 150 at-bats last year, which is, you know, of the, of the top uh, five or six catchers, he, he had, you know, that's pretty up there. They also have him playing first base a little bit. I don't know how much that's going to happen again this coming year. But, I mean, he had, he hit 11 home runs. He batted 333. He, had, he hit for average. He had 32 RBIs. He scored uh, 22 runs. So he was, his numbers were up there last year coming off the injury. Now, I'm, I'm actually going to speak about this when we get to the injury update about how players do when they come back from time. Tommy John surgery because he can't. He's 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 on a pedestal by himself. Aaron Hicks, he's coming back from um, from Tommy John surgery also, and he actually tweeted out saying that his elbow never felt the same. So it's a complete crapshoot. Every everybody's body, quote unquote, body reacts differently to different types of procedures and surgeries and everything like that. It seems that Salvador Perez seems to have healed properly. He's 100% ready, and I I don't see any any difference in his playing time. He should be the normal Salvador Perez going into next year. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, let's do one more positional market premium discussion, and then we'll go on to statistical. Um, middle infielders versus uh, corner infielders. Um, as you said before, Tristan, we find that people are still paying uh, much at shortstop, at, at second base, or, or whatnot, as compared to corner. Uh, so what is your strategy and how to handle the, the market in, in, the, in those cases? So I, I actually don't put much of a weight positionally on any of the four infield positions, other than... And it's probably been been beaten a little bit uh, <laughs> too much here, uh, banging this drum a little bit too loudly about how first base is nowhere near as deep as it used to be. It doesn't mean it's uh, devoid of talent. It's just that it, it doesn't have quite the top level stars. Um, doing a quick analysis over that one, it was we were looking at almost 15 first basemen would end up in the top hundred as recently as five years ago, and in the past couple of years you'd be looking at eight or so. So it, it has cut back a little bit. Um, one thing I would say is I, I do attempt to uh, funnel certain categories into these positions. I do find that you're going to get a little bit more of your stolen base production from shortstop, specifically occasionally from second base. You're not going to get that from the corner infield position. So you got to be careful about if you fill these spots at the corners and you don't get enough uh, home run and RBI production, you're going to need to go for the stolen bases at short and, and second base. And therefore, you might be forced into making a certain decision during the draft at some point or in the auction at some point there. Um, so that's one, 
probably the one thing I keep in mind at, at the draft table. Right, and they are intermixed. The the concept of positions and statistics, and you're right. It's it's not it's not independent of each other. You know, you have to realize that there are stolen bases in the middle infield, so you got to make use of that when you do your spread. Um, Ruvain, uh, for you for for corner infielders, I know that you and I have talked a lot in the past that uh, especially uh, that there's there's a, a market discount. I mean, we've found that. Jose Abreu, I mean, until this year where he broke out, he was always a bargain. Um, Freddie Freeman, she should have been a first-rounder for many years before that. Uh, what's your take on the corner infielder market discount? Yeah, you're going to get your biggest discount. Not in, The outfield has stolen bases, so people go after the stolen bases. And like Tristan said and you said, the middle infield is where you get the stolen bases, so that may be why there isn't a premium for those types of positions. But corner infield... That's where you're going to get your extreme bargains. You mentioned Dominic Smith. He was an extreme bargain last year. Manny Machado, he was going later than what he did. He was he was a top 10 player last year. Um, you have these players like uh, Kyle Seeger who performed over. Rafael Devers, you can even get an, a great bargain from him for him this year. You don't have to pay premium because he had, I guess, a down season for him. Pete Alonso had a down season. Is, is he going to continue to hit the home runs at the same pr- uh, um, prominent level that he did the year before? All these players, you're corner infield you have to aim to get the big boppers you got to get the big bopper big bopper either a corner or first or third that's where you get them and you don't necessarily have to pay premium for them because power is all over the place all right so um let's move on to statistical so the question i have here which has come up in the last couple of years is uh do you pound the power or do you reach for speed now There's almost a a contradictory two ways of thinking that you can have. We know that homers are up in baseball. Um, In 2019, 58 players hit at least 30 homers. In 2014, there were only 11. Uh, It's crazy how power is up. Um, Do we? The thing is, because homers and power is up, we need more of it. That's the truth. But at the same time, there's more available, right? At the bottom of draft, there are more power hitters. So the question is, do we need to pound the power early saying we just need a large quantity? But, or do we say, um, no, we can wait because there's so many available. Now, it's the, almost the opposite conundrum for stolen bases in that we say th- there's very few stolen bases out there. Stolen bases are shrinking, especially the, the concentration, right? Uh, other than Adalberto Mondesi, is there anybody who's going to steal over 30 bases this year? We don't know. So the question is, should we put less emphasis on the stolen base category because there's so little of it? Um, Or should we say, well, I mean, it's so easy to dominate, take Mondesi or Turner or somebody and try to dominate it because the value of a stolen base guy is so much more. Yes, you need to pay more. So, Tristan, what do you do to solve these two conundrums? Do we pound the power or reach for the speed? Some of both, none of both. How do you play this? So so I hate being the fence guy in this one, but I have to preach the, the balance of a roster here. And that's something I try to, to keep in mind here is that if you wait on power and you only build it up at the end of the draft, well, a lot of those players have warts. Usually they're tied to being on teams that don't give you run production. You're going to be disappointed in terms of uh, the lineup and the influence on runs and RBI and potentially even on plate appearances. The other is batting average. Very often those guys late have terrible batting averages or at least are likely to drag your team down. And then you're going to have to spend elsewhere to get somebody to balance that category out. If you lean on the speedsters, you, you know, you, you could end up having a team that's got one player who does a lot of this and another player who does a lot of that. And if one of them goes down, you're going to be swinging your team towards a very, you know, power driven squad. Or if those guys get hurt, you're going to have a very speed driven squad. And then people are going to take you on the trade market. I've seen this happen too many times. 
I like to go for the balanced type of players. Uh, there were, let's see, where was it? It's, uh, gosh, as I can't even find my number, how many was, I think it was 26, 26 players had 20 steals and 10, uh, 20 home runs and 10 steals, uh, in the last full year in 2019. That's the pool in which I want to go. I want to kind of space out my, my stolen bases. I like Cody Bellinger for a good example, because he contributes something in terms of steals. I don't want to be paying the Alberto Mondesi premium and get all my steals in one bucket there. I want to try and get a guy with 10, a guy who's underrated who might get 12, 15. Maybe I'll spend a little bit on a 25 to 30 steal guy, but I'm typically just not, not chasing here. I, I, yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to describe that. I, I would just say, yo, be balanced. Don't, don't, don't lean on either category. Okay, the only thing to that I'd say, though, is that you'll find that a lot of the players in the middle in certain drafts, even if they're 20-10 type players, they're still going to be pushed up. Because of the 10 steals, they might constitute a premium. Are, are you okay with paying the premium somewhere in the middle at the bottom for stone bases, or must you get something up top? Like how Does this, the, does this concept of people paying up for steals make Trey Turner more worth it in the first round? Or are you good with like accumulating the Marcus Semyons, Kevin Biggios, even if they're a little bit more expensive than they should be, but you're paying a, a, a market premium down in the seventh round, not in the first round? Honestly, I'm typically taking the ones in the early rounds. I'm usually going with okay. that ace I mentioned before, and then I'm going with the guys who probably blow past 20 and 10 if I can get them. Uh, I, I won't overdraft them. I'm not going to be the guy who takes Kevin Biggio at pick 60. It's, that's not going to be – not in a batting okay. average league at least. Right. Okay. Okay. So you're saying that the market premium in the middle is too steep and the market premium above is probably adequate. Um, uh, Ruvain, what, what are your thoughts? I know that you you and I also like to do the you know the, 10, the 2010 type guys like Tristan. Uh, anything to add? Yeah, well, a couple of things. First of all, um, I would always pay the extra dollar or pick an extra round earlier a top guy than have to pick a guy lower down because th there's still there's less uh, a lower floor, I mean a higher floor for the higher pick as opposed to the lower pick. Now, I want to throw out some numbers here. Um, last year, for stolen bases, 13 players had 10 or more steals last year, and that's in a 50-game season. Three of them... Roman Quinn, Dylan Moore, Manny Margot. You didn't have to pay a premium for any of those. In 2019, of the top 20 stolen bases guys, five of them were not drafted. You could have you could have got them off the waiver wire. As for power, 51 players last year had 10 or more home runs, and that's again in a 50 game season. That means they're on pace for 20 plus home runs. 21 of them had 40 plus RBIs, and 40 of them had 35 plus runs. Uh, you don't have to pay a premium for power. It will come to you. They do have the warts, like like Tristan said, but you don't have to pay the market uh, premium for it. You can get it at your own. You can wait on it, and you can still get the guys you want. Now, I'm not saying there are some players you shouldn't pay a, pay a premium for, but you don't for both steals and power. There are players there. If you pick the right one, you get the right one. You don't have to pay the premium for either one. Tristan, do you think that your decision on this is a little bit tied towards the waiver wire pool? That if you think that there's going to be acceptable guys in the power, especially in a shallow league, that you can you you don't have you get that speed early because you can find a fungible guy on the waiver wire, whereas steel stone bases these days at least are much harder to find. Does that affect your decision? It does a little bit. That that doesn't have okay. a, a significant weight. Okay, okay. Now now we come to a very special player, Adalberto Mondesi. Um, he's very, very, very special. Uh, first of all, he's quite risky in terms of performance. Uh, he, he has been injury-prone in the past. 
he seems to put together great halves. I mean, the the half of 2020, the first half, which is uh, the month of July and August, um, he was god-awful, and we thought, my goodness, this is a bust. And then he was one of the top players in all of fantasy for the month of September, and he made it to, uh, I'm going to say, about a tw- overall second-round player at, at, when all said and done, which is just incredible where he came from in the first half. Um, but the makeup of him is he, he's a 50-stolen base guy. I think that the top guys after him that I can reasonably project are Trey Turner with 30, um, Nobody else with more than 30. Mondesi, 50. Um, that's a very valuable commodity because there's nobody who's going to come within even in that production. Plus, it appears that Mondesi has some power. He's not going to be a, a Malik Smith where he's going to hit three homers. He could hit anywhere between 10 and 20 homers in a season if you look at his his way maybe he won't get the 20 that he's been on the pace for i think it's closer to 10 15 but he's not a zero so how do how do you evaluate where to, where do you pick him um in terms of the context of just a dominant player in stolen bases plus the risk how, how, do, how do we go about saying pick him here at the, well first it's incredible to see that he was the 12th best player in the espn leagues last year despite the fact yeah. that he wasn't even uh, in the threshold of AL-only leagues value-wise during that first month you had mentioned. 24 That's stolen bases. That's right, 24 stolen bases. Yeah, and I mean, you, you obviously had to have him during that first month. He stole eight bases through September 3rd, even even though he's almost 700th overall in terms of uh, overall player value. Right. This is one of the toughest guys for me to rank. And I, I really want to get behind Mondesi because you mentioned he does have the pop. The problem is that he doesn't have the patience to have a complete game here. He, right. he, there, there's not enough balance or there's too much inconsistency. And when the player then has an injury question on top of it, that's what gives me pause. He has missed a pretty significant amount of time due to injury over the past two and a half years. And yeah, he was fully healthy last year, but I think that's going to serve to push him up too much in drafts. If he's going real soon, in, in, unless it's a, a league where I can control the assets, for example, it's not draft format, it would have to be auction. And I'd have to feel that the bidding didn't get out of control. I am probably out on Adalberto Mondesi. I think there's just too much risk there, and you're tying too many things up in one bin. And if he's terrible, yeah, there's always the chance he could start losing playing time, and that's going to influence the steals. Yeah, I, I think I'm the same. I think that in drafts, it's a, it's going to be a pass for me uh, because at where he's going, I'm going to want to take a, a, a more well-rounded player, a big bopper, uh, a pitcher, more, more likely a pitcher if, if anything else, um, and the variability I just don't want to pay for. To me, if you're going to be that variable in terms of risk, in terms of when he accumulates stats, um, you need to get a discount, not a premium for, for a variable guy. I don't want to pay for it with, with Mondesi. In an auction, you could find an environment where the, the, the stolen base market premium is just not that significant, and paying that price for Mondesi where he goes might be a fit. I mean, I'd rather pay a $5 market premium for Mondesi than a $5 premium on Victor Robles somewhere in the middle. So I could find myself in a situation. Um, and, of course, in auctions, there's, way to do, there's a way to do that. You don't have to nominate high players first. You can nominate some stolen base players uh, at the end. And actually, that's what uh, Ruven and I did uh, last year in a lot of drafts. We nominated Elvis Andrus, Malik Smith, Lorenzo Cain, just to see what the price of some lower level was, lo- lower level players were in terms of the market premium to see, okay, should we take the cheaper guys because there's going to be too much of a market premium on guys on top? Or should we say, you know what, there's not enough of a market premium. We're just going to go for the top and and get the Mondesi, t- well, get the guys who provide a large amount of steals early. 
Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I'm out on Mondesi for a lot of this stuff. You don't need him for your team. The, the other, the other thing is that you know if you're in, if you're in a roto league, right? It's where you are in the standings. So what if one team gets Mondesi and finishes in first? You can still finish second or third, right, and get almost the same points as that one. I don't find that that the the variation with one guy happening to get it's not like you're putting yourself in a deficiency by not getting Mondesi. You're just giving him to somebody else, and I think that matters. By the way, the other thing to consider is that if he has one of those slumps, ten, the tendency is that his manager is going to get frustrated with him. You might be able to trade for him at a reasonable price at that point, and then you could recoup some of those steals you thought you left at the table. Well, I, I have some worrisome numbers here with Mondesi that, you know, I'm really nervous about. He did have shoulder surgery September 2019, so, you know, that may have hindered his, his running game a little bit because if if his shoulder was bothering him, he tends to dive head first, and if he has a shoulder issue, he may not be wanting to dive into head head first. But now people are expecting the speed. That's what they're expecting. But last, but last year uh, he, and the year before, he has some troubling numbers. His slugging, his hearted percentage, and his barrels have been down every year since 2018. Now, he's only going to be turning 26 this coming year, and usually the power guys hit their stride between 28 and 30. So it is possible that he'll give you some power, but I don't want to have to over, end up overpaying for a Billy Hamilton type because we, I've never rostered Billy Hamilton, and th- he could be end up being a glorified Billy Hamilton. So last topic, there is some uncertainty with 2021 as far as when the official MLB start date will be. Will the season be pushed off a month or so? Um, and, of course, there's, all, there's also the lingering uh, effects of COVID, right? The St. Louis Cardinals skipped baseball for uh, one to two weeks. The Marlins did the same. Um, you might have to play fantasy a little bit different knowing that at any point teams could be, could be theoretically shut down at any point. Um, so, Tristan, what, what are one or two things that you might be drafting differently going into this year? due to both of those uncertainties that I just mentioned. Yeah, so the first one is that that my experience this past year, even in the 60-game small sample, was uh, preaching balance again. Don't load up on a single team. Uh, one, of, one of my pitfalls was in a particular league, I ended up with too many St. Louis Cardinals and Miami Marlins. I saw a lot of uh, bargain candidates in my NL-only league with the Marlins. Ditto. And my season was over. My season was yeah, over on August yeah. 10th. Ditto. Just because I couldn't make up the number of games. And... That's kind of an issue. So make sure to spread the risk around a little bit. You know, and, and also, if, if there's any limitation where teams are playing within the same divisions, the same regions again, try to spread it across the different regions as well. That's, That's something that, that was a, a key takeaway to me if we have that question at the point where we're doing the draft. Uh, the other one, too, is if the season does get delayed, remember the fact that the players coming back from injury, who we mentioned before, Chris Sale, Noah Syndergaard, players coming off major injuries, that they might be 100%. I mean, Lance McCullers last year, he obviously had a much different outlook when the season was starting in July than it would have if it had been starting at the end of March. Right. And you stole my take. That, that, was, that was one of the things I was going to mention, that, uh, yeah, the players coming back from injury late. Or I'll also throw in player, pitchers that might have an innings cap. Maybe they're either injured or rookies or so that might be capped in an innings. Well, if they are capped, if the season is shorter, the total innings as a percentage of uh, compared to somebody else standard is now greater. So your cap pitcher has a greater value relative to everybody else. They're now more valuable as well. Um, in terms of uh, just general drafting tactics, um, in a shorter season, you want to tend, especially well, in an auction, you can't really do this as much in a draft, is you want to go more middle, middle, middle. Uh, it, 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 
I know that in a one to two year period, a first rounder will gravitate and make up and return first round value. If he has a bad month, he'll have a better month uh, some other time. But it's harder to make up time when you have a shorter season. So spreading the risk is a better strategy for overall value. I'd rather spend on two $20 hitters than one $40 hitter if it's a short season because now I get two tickets to make up the full value and there's less risk of just complete failure. Uh, anything to add, Ruvain? Yeah, one other thing is that well, if the season is shortened, they may end up playing a lot of doubleheaders again. And playing a lot of doubleheaders means less playing time for the starting catcher, less save opportunities for the pitch for the closers. So those values may go down in my book also a little bit because you're not going to have a closer pitch twice in a day sometimes and then come back the following day. Catchers are going to miss more games. So you have to you know just apportion it according to their projections and work it that way. But I wouldn't spend as much money if I know the season is going to be delayed a little bit. Mailbag question. Um, I put this as a poll on Twitter. Who will have the most runs plus RBIs in 2021? Would it be Fernando Tatis Jr., Freddie Freeman, Juan Soto, or Mike Trout? What say you, Tristan? I struggle with this one quite a bit because I want to give you <laughs> Juan Soto, but I'm the, I'm the most scared about his offense. Uh, I probably would take Freeman. Funny you mentioned that because uh, my choice would be Freeman also, yet he came in almost dead last in this poll on Twitter. Um, Juan Soto came in first. Uh, Ruvain, what, what, what would be your answer? I'm going to go with Juan Soto. Juan Soto, remember, missed almost a full month of the, almost a full month of the season because of COVID last year. His numbers were astronomical. If he would have played the full season, he would have been the MVP and not Freddie Freeman, even though the Nationals didn't make the playoffs. I think that he would have been the guy, He even if the lineup's not that great, he's still producing. He finds a way to produce, and I'm sure that sometime in the offseason, the Nationals are going to try to boost their lineup just a little bit to get him a little bit more protection. And funny about COVID, Juan Soto actually did not have COVID. He just had some positive tests somewhere and unfortunately missed time for that. Freddie Freeman, he actually did have COVID. And he had a bad case of COVID. And yet he still so came did, back for an end. Preseason. So, yeah. did, the so did DJ LeMahieu. So did DJ LeMahieu. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. DJ LeMahieu was in the preseason. Soto, I remember, was the yeah. day of the Yankees opener, which right. that, yes. that was a guy who killed me in another league because I, I lost him active for that first 10-day period. <laughs> Yeah, and then you have players uh, like uh, Eduardo Rodriguez who just lost the whole season because of COVID. So uh, funny funny times we have. Interesting, though, that Mike Trout, he came in second place in this, but it's amazing how Juan Soto, um, a lot, most people, 42% said Juan Soto to 26 Mike Trout on this one. Um, I have been saying for a couple of years that Juan Soto will be the next player in baseball with the title best player in baseball. Uh, he's going to unseed Mike Trout, and that could take place maybe not this year, Maybe next year, uh, I think he's got a really bright future. He's still young. He is. I mean, he he was not legal to drink when the Washington Nationals won the World Series just a year and, ago. And where did Fernando Tatis fall in this? Because people are drafting him extremely high. He has the highest premium of all these guys. Uh, he finished fourth in this. I think it's more because of his steals. Um, but I mean, really? Uh, he was uh, yeah, he finished in this last year. He finished 16% in this one. Freeman finished with 17% in, in this uh, trivia in this uh, uh, Twitter poll. 
Um, I mean, Fernando Tatis, though, is a consensus top three or five pick uh, in, in most Roto formats. Um, there's, he had the third most no runs in RBI last year. That's incredible that he was last in the poll. I wouldn't have expected that. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I- I'm more confident about Freeman's lineup. I think that he just has an amazing lineup around yeah. him with the guys they have. And I know that Duval might be out, Ozuna might be out, but they're going to replace them with somebody and add to whatever they have now. Uh, so I, I'm just a, I'm a Freeman fan. Strength is consistency. It's always been the guy's going to play every day. He's he's yeah. perennially underrated, and, and that's what you want in a first rounder. I mean, he's uh, who, who 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 do you have more confidence in in returning a, a first round value, Freeman or Trevor Story or Trey Turner? I think it's Freeman. Yeah, I yeah I, I still feel pretty good about both of the shortstops to be honest with you, but I'm a pretty pro and have been a pro Trey Turner guy. <laughs> Right, and but it's not to say that you shouldn't draft those shortstops before Freeman because there's steals, because there's other things they give you. But I'm more confident that right. of the consistency in Freeman, and that does speak volumes as to maybe he is undervalued even where he's going right now. Yeah, it's the idea of not not taking the guy that sinks you with your first round pick. Freeman is going to return value. Your your likelihood correct. of that is extremely high compared to the other guys in that tier. Correct, correct. All right, Ruvain, injury update. Okay, so I did mention before about Aaron Hicks. He actually mentioned on Twitter that he's, his arm elbow doesn't feel the same since he had Tommy John surgery back in October 2019. So that's that could be a red flag for people like Salvador Perez, which it wasn't. Didi Gregorius is going to have a bounce back year this year. And Reese Hoskins, who was a big question mark coming into the season, he had the same, he had a similar type surgery. So the question will be how he feel, how both Aaron Hicks and Reese Hoskins and Didi bounced back from this surgery. I mentioned uh, Chris Sale and Noah Syndergaard earlier. Um, Red Sox chief baseball officer, Chaim Bloom, said that Sale continues to make progress and from his Tommy John surgery, and he would be fully stretched out by the middle of next summer. Syndergaard should be on the same timeline because they had surgery within the same week. And I want to mention one other, Gio Urshela, another Yankee. He had right elbow surgery in early December to remove a bone chip. Recovery time is around three months, but he's expected to be ready for spring training. Thank you for that, Ruvain. Um, this was a fantastic show tonight. Uh, certainly, this was a different type of episode than you get on most podcasts, where we're talking about some theoretical concepts and just how to attack categories w- without mentioning a lot of names. And we did mention a bunch of names along the way. Uh, but I-, I hope the audience, I hope that you guys uh, enjoyed this. And I thoroughly did. And I want to thank Tristan Cockroft for coming on the show uh, so much. Uh, Tristan, can you tell everybody where we can read your stuff, listen to you, and so on and so forth? Sure, absolutely. Well, first, I want to say thank you, of course, for having me on. I've had a good time, too. Uh, you can, of course, reach, uh, read all my stuff at ESPN.com slash fantasy. Uh, go to the baseball page. have rankings up there all the time. They're constantly updated year-round. Uh, and you can follow me on uh, Twitter at Sultan of Stat. I, I have all my links up there as well. All right, Ruvain, uh, how about you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates even throughout the offseason. I also have an in-season weekly article on Rotoballer dealing with all the injuries and their updates. Well, I know that uh, you know when I first started uh, getting into fantasy baseball, uh, I, I remember listening to um, the uh, Fantasy Focus po- podcast with Matthew Berry, um, and uh, I remember when Tristan, when you first came on, and I'm like, wow, this guy's pretty good. Um, so I, I really feel fortunate to have you on the show, and, and thank you so much for, for joining. It's my pleasure. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, that does it here for the Beat the Shift podcast. Uh, Tune in uh, next week. We're actually going to have a bonus episode, a couple of episodes coming up uh, in the next week. So tune in for that special guest. 
more goodness, talking strategy, talking players. The ATC projections are going to come out on Fangraphs in probably about under two weeks by the time you hear this. So check them out. The uh, ATC projections, as we mentioned, have been really successful, so you might want to use them as your projections base. Um, From all of us here at Beat the Shift, want to wish you a great offseason. Happy New Year. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.